Thanks, guys. As I looked at the uh, text of Scripture that we're looking at today, I asked Bennett on Friday if he could sing that song for us before we uh, kind of open the, the word here, because uh, I, really, uh, I really believe that that song gives us a sense of what the text is, is trying to uh, communicate to us today. So just so you know, we are going to uh, be in a, uh, a series in 2 Thessalonians. And so rather than jump in in 2 Thessalonians, we thought we'd go back to where uh, this ministry of Paul is described in Acts chapter 17. It's the first time he's come to the city of Thessalonica. And so we're going to take a look at that first. And then next week, just so you know, is um, uh, Sanctity of Human Life, Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so we'll observe that. And then the week after that, that's when we'll jump into our study in 2 Thessalonians. So what I'd like to do is open up to Acts, um, Acts chapter 17. And we're going to read the text of Scripture there, just verses 1 through 9. And we're going to get a, a sense of what's going on in Paul's life at this point. And then we're going to spend the next uh, 30, 40 minutes really thinking about, okay, what does that mean? And then what does it mean for us as well? And we always want to start with what does it mean first before we ask what does it mean for us. But that's kind of where we'll go. Acts 17, let's start reading in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down. They've come here also. And Jason has received them. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let's pray. Father, uh, open up the the word to us today and help us see and understand what, what we can and what we should from Acts chapter 17. Help us as well in this study of 2 Thessalonians as it comes our way. Uh, we, we want to receive the word. We want to grow from the word. We want Christ to be our focus and our focal point always. And so we, we pray for, for help to do that. Change our lives because uh, I need my life changed if I'm going to be more like Jesus. And I think that's the heart of all of us as we come to you. That we know where we are right this minute is, is not far enough along. We're going to need your spirit to carry us. We're going to need your spirit to teach us. We're going to need your spirit to to shape us. And we praise you that we have your word. And so we pray you to apply it to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to have a quick history lesson. I hope that you're all ready. I brought my handy-dandy little laser pointer. 
And so we're going to learn from what's going on in Paul's life uh, here on this second missionary journey. That, that's really what he's about. He's been on one missionary journey, and now he's, he's kind of gone out, and he's on his, his second trip. And he is bringing the gospel to all these cities in Asia Minor. And Well, let's take a look at where he's been. Um, you can see the top is where he's, he's really been. And so over there, he's, he's coming through here, and you can see that he's, he's wanting to go north. And in Acts chapter 16, um, he's really kind of prevented from continuing to go that direction. And so rather than continuing to go north here, he kind of hooks down to Troas. And in Troas, he has a vision. And it's the vision of this man who appears to him and this man from Macedonia saying, hey, come on over, man. Come on over to us and bring the gospel. And that is exactly why he continues in the boat over here to go up to uh, Neapolis and to go up to Philippi. It's because literally he and his team have been led specifically and directly to go over here to Macedonia. So they have been at Philippi, and just to tell you the story of Philippi real quick, this won't be a long history lesson, it'll be a short one. You remember that he went into Philippi, and there's this girl who uh, was telling people's fortunes, and she, she had some kind of demon in her, and literally Paul and Silas cast the demon out of the girl. And so she was no longer able to tell the future. And by the way, palm readers and, and uh, uh, horoscopes, these are not things to be trifled with and played with. These are, these are wrong kind, these are of the evil one kinds of things. And Paul threw the, the demon out in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, to make, again, that long story short, the people of Philippi were angry because they couldn't make money. The, her, her owners were angry, and so they, they kicked them out of Philippi. And so that's kind of the story of Philippi. Then our, our text today says, well, then he was going down to Amphip- Amphipolis, Amphipolis, Amphipolis. I'm going to go with that, all right? And then Apollonia, and then um, he finally gets to, you can see Thessalonica, and there's a little arrow. It's right there, Thessalonica. So modern day, we still have Thessaloniki in Greece. So take a look at these couple quick pictures. This is what Thessaloniki looks like today. It's, it's a beautiful waterway. You can see that it's on the water it's on the Aegean Sea. It's a city of a million people. Uh, the next picture shows some of the, I mean, it's, shipping is huge. Beautiful area. Absolutely gorgeous city. Uh, you probably know it's home of AU. You don't know that it's home of AU. Aristotle University has its home in Thessaloniki. It is the largest university in Greece, um, even though this is the second largest city in Greece. And so it's amazing to think that that city is still there. In fact... Uh, In 1917, they had a big fire there. Long story short, the fire gave them opportunity to do some digging, and they found some incredible stuff dating back to, you know, like the the 1st and 2nd century B.C. But most of the stuff is untouched because the city's built on it. So underneath the city, Thessaloniki, is all of this incredible history that most of us will never see because they just kept building up, building up, building up on the city. Next slide. So um, here's the other thing that's interesting is that... uh, you know, in Galatians, it says that when the time is, was perfect, Jesus came. And one of the ways that the time was perfect was that Rome had set up shop in Jerusalem and in Israel. And so they built all sorts of incredible things that made it possible for the gospel to go forth. One of the things they built was the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way is a road that connected all of the Roman provinces. 
They built it so they could get their chariots and they could get their armies and they could get their stuff around. Well, Paul, you can see this Ignatian Way, Thessalonica is right here, and so he used the Ignatian Way as a means to get the gospel out. He was using the technology of the day for the glory of God. He didn't shy away from it because it was Roman. He, in fact, used it because it was Roman. So this is like an 800-mile road that connects Byzantium, and long story short, that's modern-day Istanbul. Um, that connects the, the west, or excuse me, the east, all the way to the west in all these Roman cities and, and provinces. The thing we need to know is that he's, he's on the Ignatian Way around Philippi. Check, take a look at this one. The Ignatian Way is still there. I mean, this is, this is remnants today. That picture was taken a couple of years ago. It's remnants today of this road that Rome built 2,000 years ago that's, that uh, was used so that Paul could get the, the gospel out to the city of Thessalonica. It's an incredible story. So with all that as background, a little bit of history to what we're all about today, we learned some really important lessons from Paul as he approaches, as he approaches Thessalonica. In, in chapter 17, it says, Now when they, and, and the word they, I want to stop right there. I say, here's lesson number one. If we are going to bring the gospel to the city of Sheboygan, if we're going to learn from how Paul brought the gospel to Thessalonica, lesson number one is we need each other. We need team. Okay? The, the way I want to say it is we need to learn to work together. Paul had with him Silas. And if you remember, he and Silas were singing songs in the Philippian jail. I wonder how, how, it, how much harder it would have been for them had they been separated from one another. But they had each other, and they were singing together in the jail. Just prior to that, they had, they had added somebody to their team. They came to one of the cities they were at, and they met this dude named Timothy. And Timothy, they, you know, his story is told in Acts chapter 16. I'm not going to go into it now. But long story short, here's Paul and Silas. They're on their second missionary journey. And they're like, you know what we need to do? We need, we need to be constantly adding people to our team. We need to be inviting people onto our team. If we read 1 Timothy, we find that Paul and Timothy were very different. Paul was this educated, linear philosopher. Timothy was like an, uh, an encourager who was going to fight for the, the faith, but he was more relational. He was of good relationships with everyone, and Paul was less worried about relationships. Paul invited Timothy to come and be on his team so that it would strengthen his team. He was always looking for a younger guy, the next guy to pour into, to give his ministry and to share his ministry with. It's so crazy. Sometimes we get into ministry and we think, you know what? This ministry, this is my ministry. This is my thing. This is my life group. This is my adult Bible fellowship. This is my thing. And I I don't want to like share it with other people. I don't want to invite people in. I don't want to develop the next person. Here's another reason you may not want to share it. I mean, think about Paul. He'd been burned before in relationship. Remember he went out with Barnabas the first time? It was Paul and Barnabas. Here's my bright idea. Let's invite John Mark along with us. And again, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but the, the, the nutshell version of the story, John Mark gets sick of the first missionary journey and heads home. And so now Paul and Barnabas finish the missionary journey, and they are about to go out on missionary journey number two, and Barnabas is like, hey, okay, I got an idea for you, Paul. Let's bring John Mark again. 
Paul says, there is no way. And so literally, the Bible says they had such a violent, such a big disagreement, they parted ways. Barnabas went with John Mark one way. Paul went with Silas another way. Now, we can see that there was good and glory. Later, they kind of make nice with one another as late in, in Paul's life. He says, John Mark's a good guy. He served the Lord his whole life. Praise the Lord for him, all right? But at the time, they parted companies. He's been burned by partners. And yet, when the right situation came along for them to invite Timothy to join them on, the, them on their team, he invited him in. He wants to share the ministry. Let me ask you the question. Who, who is your Paul? Somebody that is serving in a capacity right now, and you feel like they, they've got a sense of what that capa- the, the service is, and, but they're willing to invite you and share the ministry with you and, and bring you along. Because, listen, if, you, if we're going to reach Sheboygan, we need teams of people who love Sheboygan. We can't work alone. You can't just go out and say, well, my thing is this one thing, and it's my ministry, and it's my thing. No, we need to share it. Who's your Barnabas? Who's your Timothy? This person that you're inviting, you've got a ministry, and it's established, and it's going, and, and it's time for you to, to invite this person in to be a part of what, is, what God is doing in your life as you share that ministry with the people around you. Because listen, if we're going to just come in here, listen to teaching, and go out there, and that's going to be it for us, we're going to really struggle to reach the city of Sheboygan. We need teams of people who are committed to one another, who are praying for one another, who are on task, who are serving the city of Sheboygan, and who are sharing the ministry with one another. If you, maybe you're here today and you're like, well, I don't even know, like, where would I go to get started? I'm glad you asked. Take out your little bulletin insert that you've got there. Today, right this minute, the, the ABF series are starting. There's a five-week series, and it's for all of us. It's for any one of us who would say, you know what? Boy, I don't know. I don't know where to start. Well, the first one we see is for, for young adults on evangelization. And by the way, if you're not a young adult, you, you can go. It's teaching us how to turn everyday conversations about water and bread and, and YouTube, how to turn everyday conversations to Jesus Christ. That's what we want to be good at. The, the second one, the, the third one is another one that I want to kind of just point out. The study of Haggai is going to be great. The third one, equipping the saints. The whole point of that teaching is to say, you know what? How do I start handing off my ministry and my burdens and my heart for ministry to other people? How do I give it to them? How do I observe what's going on without controlling exactly what Paul and Timothy are doing here? How do, I, how do I even enter into that kind of thing so that I'm developing the next generation? In the psalmist, you see the minor prophets, ambassadors putting off the old, putting on the new, about how to grow in our personal holiness and put on the character of Christ. Quiet before the Lord. I don't know, maybe you don't know how to read the word well. And you don't spend time in the presence of God. We want to teach you how to do that. And the characteristics of the Christian family is in the mix. The next hour at 11 o'clock today. How do I raise my kids to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ? Look, the whole reason we have full spectrum discipleship in our ABS is because we know we need each other. We know we need to constantly be developing the next generation. We know we need to be giving, equipping, 
uh, principles to you, entrusting ministry with one another. And we know that you guys are doing ministries that you want to share with others as well. So we need to work together and we need to learn to work together, even if you've been burned, to trust that the Lord is raising up people around you and that God is going to be good and do good things for you. Notice, too, real quickly, that we, uh, we work together in spite of cultural and racial differences. Do you see who's on the team there? Paul is the Jew of Jews. In Philippians chapter 3, he describes he's, you know, who he is and his past. Timothy is kind of this, well, he's, he, we know in, in Acts 16, verse 1, it says that his, who his mom and dad were. One was a Jew, one was a Greek. We know that Luke, Luke wrote the book of Acts. He's a Greek. He's a doctor who's a Greek guy, completely Greek. So, so we see this team has come together, and we see all the different diversity on the team. And can I just tell you, we're going to see that as a theme throughout this, this text. Let's make diversity what we're about. Let's make ethnic backgrounds different. Let's embrace the fact that we're not all the same, and we shouldn't all be the same. And again, we'll look more at that in the coming, in the coming verses. Well, so work together, number one. Number two, as we seek to impact a city with the gospel, <clears throat> we're going to need to find a relational starting point. Where do you start to plant a church? Because I think that's the same question we who are in a church should be asking. Where do we start speaking about Jesus to the people around us? Take a look here at uh, chapter 17, okay? Again, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So he found a relational starting point, namely, he's a Jew that knows all the customs of the synagogues, and he knows the Old Testament backwards and front, and he wanted to go into a place where the people knew the Torah. And so he went into the synagogue. We're going to look at his message in the synagogue in a minute. But that was a beautiful starting point. Notice in Philippi, that wasn't his starting point. There was no synagogue in Philippi. And if we would put that little map back up there, it means Philippi was just a few miles away. But note that when he was on this second missionary journey, he was, like a, he was a long way away from Jerusalem. A long way. So it wasn't like every Greek city up in that area that was going to have Uh, a synagogue in it. But Thessalonica was big enough and diverse enough that there was indeed a group of uh, Jews that had their own synagogue. Typically speaking, traditionally, if you had 10 people who were Jewish in a city, they tried to develop a synagogue. So Philippi had like almost no Jews in it, but Thessalonica has a synagogue. So he walks in and he knows what he has in common with the people right there, right then, and he starts his conversation. Okay, guys, from the Old Testament, let's reason who this Jesus guy is and what he's all about. Let me ask you a question. What is your starting point for the gospel? Maybe it's your job, and you have a starting point relationally with people there. Here, here's my, man, here's my temptation. I don't know if you fall into this category too, but sometimes I make my starting point my ending point. And I fail when I do that. 
So I start with relationship, a neighbor. We shovel together, we shovel together, we shovel together. And six and eight years later, we're still shoveling together. And our starting point was that we live next to each other. But all we ever do is talk about shoveling in the Packers. I've got to be careful that my starting point is not my ending point. And we're going to look at that again as we go. What's your starting point? Listen, the starting point in the city is probably not that the whole city believes the Old Testament and wants to talk about the Torah. That's not our starting point. Your starting point may be a single mom who needs somebody who loves her. Your starting point may be uh, that, that uh, there's somebody who's just broke and needs help financially. Your, your starting point may be somebody who's struggling with their sexual identity and trying to work it out, and they need somebody who cares about them. Your starting point might be the factory where you work. And that is a beautiful place to start. Um, so yesterday, uh, in this church, in the sanctuary, we had a, a funeral. And the flowers here are in memory of Jan Jones. He's a former elder of the church, a man who loves Jesus, loved Jesus. And, well, he still loves Jesus. He's just with them now. And uh, so in getting ready for that funeral yesterday, I got a, a letter from a, a fella. And this fellow's name is Wade Kinnicky. And Wade is a pastor in Minnesota. Listen to what he, he says. I met Jan at Kohler Company. His locker was next to mine. I became a Christian in February 1981. Can I say something? Jan became a Christian in the mid-70s. So Jan had been a Christian for three, four, five years when he started discipling Wade Kinnicky. Jan invited me to his church, and he began to mentor me in my new faith. I think my friend Gary and I were the first few, first new Christians that Jan had ever mentored. Since then, Jan has poured his life into hundreds of others. Jan taught us how to study the Bible and how to develop a prayer life. Jan had the gift of teaching and could be called, called upon to, to share it with us. He always answered questions of, of this new believer here. And so he always made time for me and answered those questions. Three years later, Wade and his wife, Sharon, went off to Bible school. Seven years after that, Wade entered the pastorate in 1991, where he's been serving since. So from 1991 to to 2016, uh, here Wade is in the ministry. Did you hear the starting point? His locker was next to mine. Now, Jan, I don't think Jan led Wade to the Lord. Uh, but once Wade was in Christ and they had conversations, that co- listen, it's not super spiritual to go into the ministry. The, end of the, the moral of the story is not how many people we can get into the ministry. The moral of the story is what is your starting point for relationships with people who need to know Jesus? Where are you starting? They're all around us. And Jan could have easily put his thermos in the the locker that day, avoided conversation, grabbed the thermos, walked home, and it would have been the end of it. But you know what? He cared. He cared, and he had a starting point. And he was aware that he needed a place where his life in community with others, there's several guys at Kohler Company who were all looking out for for new believers there and trying to witness to the people around them. And my dad was one of them, and I learned from my dad, you don't have to be in the ministry to be faithful to the gospel. 
And so all of us together finding a starting point where we go, you know what, outside the walls of this church, they're not looking to the Torah, they're looking to, to people who are near them, who, who can tell them who Jesus is. And that brings us to our third point. Because not only do we need to work together and find a relational starting point, guys, we need to, to make our, our mission and our message about Jesus Christ. About Jesus. We do not want to be a church of social action where our starting point becomes our ending point. What are you about? Social action, social action, social... Listen, there's nothing wrong with starting with... We have some incredible ministries in this church that, that are starting at social action. It's a starting point for all of us. Baby care is an incredible ministry we have in this church where low-income single parents can come and get diapers from the church, and they come day after day through the, through the work week. They can come and get pack-and-plays for their newborn kids so that they have a place to put their baby and they're not co-sleeping and they're not hurting the baby overnight. We have ministries in this church that are really crucial and important and they're these starting place ministries. But listen, the point is not baby care. The point is not the ministries that reach into the real life of the person. That's a starting point ministry that gives us a platform to talk about Jesus Christ. And we need more and more starting point kinds of ministries. But look at what Paul does when he gets to his starting point. Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. I want you to think a little bit about why that's important, okay? He's standing before these Jews, and I'm just telling you, in the synagogue, the Jews thought that their coming Messiah was going to be strong and powerful, and Isaiah 9, wonderful counselor, sit on the throne. The government would be on his shoulders, and the, the, uh, the expansion of his kingdom, there will be no end, and that's what they were looking for. And so Paul took them back to their scriptures. Of course, you know that when... Acts was written here, and certainly when when Paul was on his second missionary journey in A.D. 49, there was no New Testament. And so he opens the Old Testament, and he says to all these Jewish people, guys, I want to show you from your own book that you've missed some really important things about who this Messiah is going to be. The Messiah wasn't just going to be Isaiah 9 Messiah, come and set up a kingdom and be a, a all-powerful and, and, and visible to the whole world and, and make it easy and fun, make life easy and fun and comfortable. That, that wasn't going to be the Messiah. Look back at Psalm 22. You can turn there if you like, or if you just want to jot Psalm 22 down. He wanted to show and teach the, the uh, Jewish folks there about what Jesus, who Jesus really was. Uh, so he probably taught them Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cried day by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And he said, God, he probably said, guys, you know that Jesus said those words on the cross, right? That Jesus said that those words applied to him. 
that they were revealing to the Jewish mind that this Savior who was going to come, this one and only Messiah, wasn't just going to be this set-up-the-throne Messiah. He was going to be a suffering Messiah as well. Uh, if, if we look over to Isaiah 53, we have a, a strong statement about the kind of suffering that Messiah was going to do. And again, Paul was saying this in the synagogue, saying, guys, I, I just want to show you that, that when Jesus died, that wasn't the end of your hopes that he might be the promised one of God. Because so many Jews heard that Jesus died on the cross in, an, in, a, in a hard way, and they, in their minds, started going, okay, well, I guess that wasn't Messiah. We thought it could have been for a while, and there was word and kind of a rumbling out there in the street that maybe that was Messiah, but if he died on a cross, that's not Messiah. Galatians says that the whole, all of the Jewish people were of the mindset Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. How could the Messiah be cursed? Isaiah 53. And so I am sure, I am sure that Paul opened Isaiah 53 to those Jewish minds and said, well, let's look at this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from, um, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. And Paul stood up before the, the Jewish folks there and said, guys, this suffering man, he meets all the criteria of the Messiah. It's all about Jesus. Later, what about the fact that he would rise again? Because if, um, if you look again back at Acts 17, it says, uh, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Well, that reference to rise from the dead, where would he teach that from the Old Testament? I'm wondering if, if he turned to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And that's where the Bible says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. And, and I'm sorry, I also want to go back to um, Psalm chapter, Psalm 16. My fault. This is a passage that Peter said totally applied to Jesus. When Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, he was saying, wow, this, this passage in Psalms absolutely was talking about Jesus. All right? So Psalm uh, 16, verse 10. And I'm going to start reading in verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter says, you know what that's a reference to? The fact that Jesus was going to rise again quickly. He wasn't going to see corruption. My friends, I mean... The, the, Israel, the Jewish people said, well, look, I mean, he died. 
He was hung on a tree. He was cursed by God. There's no way that this can be our Messiah. And Paul just faithfully opens up the Bible, and he, he says, look, guys, don't let this make you ashamed of Jesus. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 1? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would I be ashamed of the gospel? I would be ashamed of the gospel in Romans chapter 1, which is written initially to the Jews. He gets to the, to the Gentiles eventually. Romans chapter 1, we're ashamed of the gospel because our Savior was hung on a tree and died. And Paul said, no, no. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Acts 17 said it was necessary. Jesus had to suffer. He had to go through in fact, anyone who would have been Messiah, if he didn't go through the suffering, if he didn't die on a cross, if he wasn't raised the third day, he wouldn't meet the criteria. He wouldn't meet the, prophecy, the, the prophesying. He wouldn't, uh, the, the things said of the Old Testament that were going to be true of Messiah wouldn't be true of him if he didn't come and do those things. Here, here is the point, guys. As we go out into the city and we have friends and we seek to start conversations, this is where the conversation has to go. This is why we teach about Jesus all the time. This is why we are constantly coming back to what does the Bible say, Old Testament and New Testament, about the person and work of Jesus Christ because the church can never become a place where we're all about starting points. And that we cannot be all about social action because at the end of the day, what the church needs to be about is teaching you and me week after week. Do you see what he did? Teaching them about Jesus. What the Bible says about Jesus so we can get it right in our head so we can go out and have conversations with the people around us and teach them that the only means of salvation is through the work that Jesus did and the, the Messiah that God promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 came. And his name is Jesus Christ. That's what we want to be about in this church. Every week, we will open up the text and teach what the text says. Most weeks, it's going to say something significant and important to you and me about Jesus. And so it's good to be good people. But can I just remind you that as your life is transformed and you are morally stronger and your uh, character is transformed in the image of Jesus Christ that the whole purpose of starting points is to take those starting points to the next level and teach your friends and neighbors that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the only name under heaven whereby we must be saved, and we've got to get that right every time. So guys, that's our heart, is that we would, we would work together, we would find a relational starting point, we would make our mission and our message all about Jesus Christ every time. Fourth thing I want to show us from this passage as we continue is that we should expect God's grace to draw all kinds of people. All kinds of different people will respond to the gospel. They will hear it, understand it, and, re- and come to, to, uh, to receive Jesus. And so as we look through, uh, again, back now in Acts chapter 17, what happened when Paul stood up in the synagogue and taught them the scriptures and what the scriptures said about Jesus, verse 4? Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So, so some of them is literally they're saying, well, a few of the Jews who were in the synagogue were convinced. And that's no small thing. For a Jewish mind at that day, when there was going to be persecution and trouble to follow, to be convinced that the Old Testament did indeed teach 
of a suffering Messiah, that was a big deal. But then there was even more Greeks. And so the Greeks were hearing this in the synagogue. Now, why the Greeks came into the synagogue, they were, they were interested and wanted to understand, and they were devout, so they were morally upright people, right? But they were understanding that the Old Testament, the Bible at the time, that it taught us about Jesus, and they received that message. And then it says, furthermore, not a few of the leading women. In other words, a bunch of the leading women. It was not uncommon for there to be a lot of prominent women in culture and politics, and not much like today. Not uncommon at all. There's going to be strong women who hear the, the message and respond to it. If we look back at uh, Philippi, uh, the, the young lady that came to faith there was a, a wealthy woman. And we looked to Lydia, the worker of purple. And, and she was a, a key cog in the Philipp- Philippian church in those days. And so now we see that that when we teach the gospel well, we should expect in Sheboygan that the, really the church is filling up with people that represent the city. So that's not to say that we go out and arbitrarily say, well, we want to make certain that our ministries are aimed at a certain ethnicity. We don't want to do that. But neither do we want to do the opposite thing where we say most of our ministries really are just aimed at people who are like us. Right? We have got to Expect and pray that the Lord brings into the church all sorts of different ethnicities, all sorts of different, of course there's only two different genders, but, but all sorts of different people, so that we are full, we are a place that is filling up in such a way that we represent and look like the city of Sheboygan. Guys, our, our heart is to see that the gospel would go forth and make a difference in lots of different people's lives. Do you look to minister to people who are not like you? Are you connecting with, with and, and proclaiming the gospel in your day-to-day life? I know it, it can be hard because honestly you're out shoveling and sometimes you, you're out shoveling and you try to, have, and try to start a conversation and maybe you have a neighbor that doesn't look like you and they don't want to talk to you. That happens sometimes. And so how, what do you do with that? You know, obviously the, the gospel was going forth in power here in, in Thessalonica. And the Lord was doing a work. The goal of Paul's teaching was to build a church. And so the Lord was bringing people into the church. But guys, we expect that God's grace is going to draw all kinds of different people into the church. Our identity in Christ, it's bigger than our ethnicity. It's bigger than our nationality. It's bigger than our skin color. It's bigger than our gender. It's all, our identity in Jesus trumps all of that. That is why only in the church where we have a Savior over us can we have uh, racial reconciliation. We should have racial reconciliation going on in the church. Why? Not because we're working at racial reconciliation, but because people of all ethnicities see their identity in Jesus as bigger than their identity in their race. And we all go, well, there's room for everybody here because we're about Jesus, not about our race. That is why only in the church will we solve racial problems. Only in the church will we solve many problems where, again, we can get our identity off our humanness and get our identity to Jesus. And when we have our identity in Jesus, we will begin to have harmony and the Lord will be bringing in people of all races to this place. Okay, 
That's our fourth, and then now our fifth. If we're going to, as we seek to impact the city, I think the, the fifth thing I want to say is that we should expect and embrace persecution. Persecution is coming. That is not a woe is me. That is not a based on recent news events. That is a, this is what happened in Acts, and we should expect that what happened in Acts, and Jesus said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you too. Right? Now, what I don't want for us to do is to become a place where we are, have a chip on our shoulder and we're expecting persecution to come. That's not the posture. We don't, we're not looking for persecution. So many times in my life, people know I'm a Christian, and then when I have relational problems with them later, I say, well, it's because I'm a Christian and they're persecuting me. And you know what? Sometimes it's just because I'm a jerk. You have relational problems in your life because you're a jerk, and then you blame it on, well, they know I'm a Christian, right? we got to make sure that that's not where we're at, where we are loving and kind, and if we are persecuted, it's not because of my personality. It's not because I'm disagreeable, and oh, by the way, I know that they know I'm a Christian, so that's why they're persecuting me. No, but the persecution comes because we love Jesus and are bringing his kingdom into this world. You see in this example a couple things we can learn from. One is that the people who make the accusations, well, let's look down at verse 5. The Jews were jealous. Why does the world persecute Christians? they're, They're jealous of the certainty that we have in God, and they don't want that, but they do want to persecute those who think they have it. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked those of the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out in, uh, out of the crowd. Seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, so Paul and Silas had skedaddled. They were out of there. And so they were staying with this guy named Jason, and Jason was now experiencing the fallout from the fact that Paul and Silas had been with them, and now they left. And so here Jason's like, oh boy, what, what's going to happen here? They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down, and come, they have come here also. So, so guys, the, the concept of turn the world upside down, can I just say something? Christians, if we are who God calls us to be, we are not trying to turn the world upside down. The world is already turned upside down. To accept sin, to accept life as it is, to live in the flesh, to reject God, to reject Jesus, that's upside down. The world that God made was right side up. And he made a world in which Adam and Eve answered to him and lived in his relationship and lived in his garden and they knew it. That's right side up. So it's ironic to us that the world around us who has flipped the world upside down is now saying to Christians, we don't like you because you're trying to turn our world upside down. It's not true. And so I want you to hear that first and foremost, that Christians who are being faithful to the Lord are trying to live with the world right side up. But the world around us is living upside down and they don't like it. And so you see what happens here? They say, the next thing is they're going to take this obscure, this law, it wasn't obscure, they're going to take this law and say, well, the law says there is one God and he is the Caesar. He's Caesar. And now these Christians are saying there's another king. There's another king. And so we've we got to persecute them. Can I just say this? Expect that in the future people will warp laws in order to take 
money and possessions from Christians. Don't let that shock you. Don't let that surprise you. We certainly should work for justice. We certainly should be kind and loving. But when laws are warped in order to persecute Christians in the future, it's just exactly what we saw in Acts chapter 17. And it's exactly what we're seeing all over the place in scriptures. If they hated me, Jesus said, they're going to hate you too. And they're going to warp laws. Listen, don't wring your hands over that and let that be the obsession of your life. There will not be salvation through politics in this world. Salvation will come as the church remains fixed on Jesus. As we remain faced and sh- uh, focused on sharing who he is, teaching from the Old Testament what he was about, and helping the people around us, even as we make starting points, helping the people around us embrace that Jesus and Jesus alone was the Messiah sent from God to save the world. That's what we're about. So when persecution comes, we're not going to go look for it. We're not going to go, you know, wishing it could increase. But when it comes, don't be surprised. Don't be a whiner. We know it's coming. So we come before the Lord and we seek to live lives where we are turning the world right side up. There's a, there's a, a letter to Diag, uh, Diagnet, Diagnetes from the uh, second or third century. And it's describing Christians at that time in the world. And, and oh, that wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if the description of these Christians would be the same for you and me in Sheboygan? But the Christians are distinguished from one another neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. They neither habitate cities of their own. In other words, we don't make cities that are just Christian cities that we go sit in. No, we live right with everybody else. They don't employ a particular form of speech. They don't lead a life that is marked out by any singularity. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according to the lot, each of them has been each each of them has determined. And following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing and food and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all the others. They beget children, but they do not put their children to death. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor yet make many rich. They, they, they They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled, yet they bless. They are insulted and they repay insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice. Guys, I, I just, as we close and think about the lyrics to God of the City, I, I just want to paint a picture for you that what if in 2016, we, you and I, 
are all about taking Acts chapter 17 and living it out? What if we are all about getting into close relationships with the people around us so that we can better be mentored and better mentor? And so we are doing this together. What if all of us together say, you know what, I'm going I'm to share ministry with the people around us. What if we all find a starting point and get better at starting in that starting point? What if all of us realize that, that some, what if all of us realize that a starting point is no ending point? And that this year, as we pray and ask God to do great things in terms of relationships, that all of us move a little bit ahead from starting point to the gospel as we share Jesus with the people around us. What if every one of us comes to the point where we go, you know, um, we're expecting through prayer that the Lord is going to be bringing into our church people of all different ethnicities and people that represent the city of Sheboygan. And we're not only expecting that, we're praying for that. And when they come into the church, we're ready to make relationships. And we hope that they'll stay. And and what if uh, every one of us, when we experience suffering and and trials and trouble because of our, our faith in Jesus Christ, We endure it faithfully. And it doesn't knock us off our mark. Keep in mind that Paul and Silas had been in Philippi. They'd been in jail. They'd been beaten. They got up from Philippi, and they didn't say, well, I guess God doesn't want me to be doing this missionary thing anymore. Because it was so hard. They took away our stuff. Put us in jail. They beat the tar out of us. And Paul and Silas, singing a song, were delivered in the night. Got up the next day. And they said, what's next? Where's the next city? Where's the next opportunity? Let's be handing this ministry off. Let's be focused on starting points. Let's grow through those starting points and share Jesus and teach people around us what the Bible says about Jesus. Let's never lose that. And when persecution comes, guys, we endure it together. I am so honored to, to have you as somebody who can help me when I'm persecuted or when I'm not following after one of these principles, to speak into my life and to help me and to pray for me. And I want to be that for you as well. You're not supposed to do this on your own. We have these ABFs that can help you. We have life groups that are open right now. We invite you to take part in. We, we do this together. And when it's hard, we cry together and we pray together and we uphold one another and we stay on the mark and we make everything we do about Jesus. As we teach the world around us, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. There's not another one. He met all the criteria and I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is in him that we have the power of God to walk with him. So let's stand and be dismissed as we go this morning. Father, this passage is really an encouragement to our hearts, and I pray as we go from this place that we would apply it to our lives. Help me. Help me to apply it to my life, to not say a bunch of words and then go on living as I've lived. Help me to grow in this. Lord, for um, the coming days, as we uh, seek to understand Second Thessalonians and what Second Thessalonians teaches us about living in life, I pray for open hearts and that you'd absolutely change us. 
help Sheboygan be a different place in a year because we are obedient to your word. And so we pray you'd help us and we'd go in grace. In Jesus' name, amen.